And I would go to this climbing gym in Boulder and get punch passes, and I'd stand there with my harness in my hand waiting on a Friday night because that's what the cork board said, you know, and and no one showed up, you know, and I stood there a lot of Friday nights like, well, well, maybe tonight, maybe tonight. And Were you, um, Was that defeating? It was, but I, in my heart, I kind of knew that there was a desire there. I felt, felt like it had to click for folks. And sure enough, one night, this guy, Barry, walked in and... He looked around. He's like, does anybody else going to show up? And I was like, oh, maybe later, <laughs> you know? And so we just started climbing. And, <laughs> no, you're the first in four weeks, but thank yeah, God you're yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, we started climbing, and, and then there were two or three folks. And that first year, there were about 70 folks that came to Phoenix. Welcome to an army of normal folks. I'm Bill Courtney. I'm a normal guy. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an entrepreneur, and I've been a football coach in inner city Memphis. And the last part, well, we accidentally ended up with an Oscar for the film about our team. It's called Undefeated. I believe our country's problems will never be solved by a bunch of fancy people in nice suits talking big words that nobody understands on CNN and Fox, but rather an army of normal folks, us, just you and me saying, you know what? I can help. That's what Scott Strode, the voice we just heard, has done. From the humble beginnings of only Scott and Barry, the Phoenix expects to serve more than 400,000 people this year. Their movement leverages the power of community, fitness, and other meaningful activities to change how society approaches addiction and recovery. And guys, it's working. I cannot wait for you to meet Scott right after these brief messages from our generous sponsors. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, 
You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Scott Strode. Bro, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've read a lot of your story, and I've watched a TED Talk, and I've been looking forward to talking to you. You and I have a lot of similarities in our life, and... The, the things you've done, I find pretty amazing. So let's let's introduce our audience to Scott the Kid, where you grew <laughs> up, how you grew up, and who you are. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Pennsylvania in a town called Lancaster. It was outside of Philly, about an hour and 45 minutes or so. And it was sort of rural, you know, Pennsylvania farmland. And my mom and my dad divorced pretty early. So kind of split my time between my mom, who was a single working mom and, and my dad who had a farm in even more rural Pennsylvania. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I had a pretty dynamic childhood, you know, I share this because it's really part of who I became, but, you know, my dad had untreated mental health struggles. And so it was uh, always trying to figure out who he was, you know, who he was going to be when we spent time with him. And then when my mom remarried, it sort of brought alcoholism into our family. So, you know, in one home, I was kind of navigating that, that alcoholic dynamic. And then in the other home, I was navigating the mental health stuff. And as a kid- Was your mom struggling with alcoholism or your stepdad? My stepdad, yeah, and then his family more broadly were were pretty heavy drinkers. So, um, your father was a farmer. He he didn't have a working farm, but he he lived on an old farm and was reno- renovating an old farmhouse. He had goats and stuff like that, but it was uh, <laughs> he was a contractor at the time, so he was doing work on other people's homes. What was the nature of his mental illness? Um, you know, we never really were able to figure that out. You know, my guess is it was untreated bipolar, Mm. but then I think of it's, it's sort of like as that deteriorates over time and with age, you know, there was this pretty powerful, like narcissistic element too. And then I think he had some, some sort of disconnects from like kind of cognitive distortions at some point, you know, where he really wasn't the way he saw the world really wasn't how the world was around him. And, and 
that ultimately led to him experiencing homelessness for the, the bulk of the later part of his life. And we tried to support him around that and help him out of that. But, you know, we realized by the time we were like eight or nine, we were kind of helping to parent him instead of him parenting us. And that, that created a pretty, pretty tough childhood. When you were, um, I, it sounds like your mom and dad had uh joint custody because it sounds like you were back and forth. Was your mom aware of that? She was, but it was sort of a different time. Like it was, it was just on the end of that sort of culture where like kind of women were seen as the failure of the marriage, even if, you know, it was like, there was still this, um, little bit of a like misogynistic culture and, and her trying to get full custody of us in the court system was pretty, pretty tough. And it wasn't until my brother hit 18 and the judge actually said, what do you want to do? And my brother chose not to want to go visit my dad anymore. That then, then the judge kind of gave us that choice too. And that was sort of our reprieve from, from those, those weekends with him where we were, you know, pretty much, we kind of joke that we grew up feral, but we kind of did, <laughs> you know, we were just like running around a farm pretty much unattended most of the time out in the woods playing and swimming across ponds. And, you know, it sounds pretty I idealistic, you know, of like, you know, in this rural setting, but truth is we, we probably should have been cared for more and, and didn't really always know what we were going to have for meals. And, you know, he would, he decided to renovate the house and he tore out a wall and never really put it back because it was kind of in a manic phase. So we had one wall that was just plastic that was like tacked up around it and, you know, heated the house with a wood stove. I don't think we had running water. I know we had an outhouse for the bulk of our time there, but uh, it was like, you know, it was a pretty, um, sort of impoverished setting. And then with my mom, it was kind of a different dynamic. She she was working, had a job, had a place for us, had some financial opportunity. And so we kind of lived in two worlds. So I got to believe I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of an eight-year-old. I, I mean, honestly, in the deepest recesses of your mind, that, that had to be frightening. And at the very least, you couldn't have felt completely safe ever with your father. Yeah. I mean, I, I honed my skill at being able to read subtle social cues so that I knew how to show up to, to best keep him calm, you wow. know, and that, that was something you, you know, we started learning. My guess is I probably learned it before I even remember, but, but I remember really thoughtfully trying to figure out, is this a time where I talk? Is this a time where I listen? Is this a time where I you know, leave or a time where I stay? You know, you never really knew if he was in a good space or, or a bad space or if he was manic or if he was depressed or, and, you know, he would, he would get fairly emotionally abusive, you know, very demeaning and, you know, kind of blaming. And when you're a little kid like that, you just, you soak that up because your world's so contained to what you know that you actually think you're the problem. You start to, uh, you start to believe that narrative and, and, you know, that's no, no surprise when I first tried booze and drugs, it, it made that go away. Scott, I, um, I'm the son of a five times divorced mother whose father left when he was, when I was four. 
I can remember at 14 or 15 looking in the mirror and wondering what was so broken about me that no man found me worthy of sticking around and investing in. Because not only divorces, there were boyfriends that were kind of long-term that I started feeling comfortable with and developing a relationship with that then were gone. And at some mm -hmm. point in a kid's ethos, when your parents are supposed to be the safest place in the world, when they're the opposite of that, you really do start to wonder, what have I done? And so I, I can absolutely identify with what you're saying when after you've been after you've been through that, you, you do start to wonder what's broken in you and maybe the dad's right. And candidly, that is both abuse and trauma. Yep. Yeah. I think you framed it up perfectly. And, and what I think now looking back, you know, is that, that, that sort of those, the, the tinting of the lens that I was forming with which I see the world through was so subtle, you know, those elements were subtle at that young age, but that tint was always there. So even as I went into my adolescence, I always had that, those self-esteem wounds I was still trying to manage as I tried to form nurturing relationships with others that was still present. As I tried to find my identity and self-worth, that was the lens I saw the world through. And until I realized I had to shatter that thing and see things clearly for the first time i it was a it was a tough road how old are you 51 i'm yeah. 55 oh, um nice. that lens didn't shatter for me until about eight years ago and i yeah. say that because i i want our listeners to understand that these kind of things that happen to children are deeply concreted in a, a person's psyche and it takes Many don't get over it, but those who somehow manage a way to get over it, it does take often years and decades, and it carries itself into your own marriages and relationships with your own children and your spouses and those you're close to. And I think I hear you saying that was the case for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in a similar sort of time frame as you, you know, that it took me, I could sort of start to manage that out of a lot of pieces of my life. And those experiences were kind of the foundation of the nonprofit I'd later build. But, but that core, that, that like deepest core of that pain was, was there until relatively recently, you know, and it, it took me doing some deeper sort of trauma work to really understand that that was within me. And, and no surprise why this is so broadly experienced, right? Because then we carry it into the next generation and we hand it down. You know, there's a quote that that's, uh, pain is passed from generation to generation till somebody's willing to feel it. And, mm. and that just really speaks to me because, you know, my dad's dad left him when he was six, right? I was just about to ask you or about to say, I'll bet your father experienced some of the same things. And was probably just doing the best he could, you know, yeah. like he was, he probably disentangled a lot of that pain before it got to us, you know, and protected us from some of it. But some of it, he, he didn't, he didn't have the skills or the tools or understanding to be able to. And, and, you know, I'm a dad now, you know, later in life. And, and I think about that a lot. Like, you know, my, my son asked me the other day, what, what 
angry means, you know, and the fact that he does <laughs> he doesn't know that from lived experience is is a blessing. Yeah, because I, well, I sure did. I would have asked him, do you got about a month? Because it's going to take that long for me to untangle that. For you. <laughs> All right. So that's dad. Yeah. Mom sounds like she's trying and working hard, but um, has made a poor choice or you got that. Those are my words for some yep. of them men that I grew up with. And was he also abusive? Um, he wasn't, he was, it was more on the, both of them were more on the like emotional side. Like, yeah, yeah, he had that's more, what I mean. He, yeah. He had more of that, like excellence, like you need to be here. You need to aspire to this, be this like excellent person. And, but he'd say that after, you know, eight martinis. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, is that excellent? <laughs> that's you know, not like really that excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, but the, the truth is the same thing. Now I'm in my adolescence. I'm like trying to really find my identity and, and it just felt like I kept getting gr ground down by this, like, you know, I, sh I should know better. I should do better. I should achieve better. I should, you know, be at this place of excellence. And, and, um, and of course we're all like, you know, there's, this woman Pia Melody who talks a lot about early childhood trauma said we're all perfectly imperfect and that's the truth even about my stepdad and my dad and you know all of us have have those good parts of us and those tough parts of us and but at the time I thought I was failing consistently because I couldn't achieve this sort of high bar and so you carry I carry people carry that that have this kind of stuff going on in their childhood and adolescence and um regardless of what facade you put on this stuff has bounced around inside your heart your head your soul your thoughts about yourself and coping with that in adolescence is often very very difficult and um uh you turned alcohol yeah. And now a few messages from our generous sponsors. But first, I hope you'll consider becoming a premium member of the Army at normalfolks.us. By becoming one for 10 bucks a month or $1,000 a year, you can get access to cool benefits like bonus episodes, a yearly group call, and even a one-on-one -on -one call with me. Frankly, guys, premium memberships also help us to grow this army that our country desperately needs right now. So I hope you'll think about it. We'll be right back. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, 
You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I had my first drink when I was 11 and it was a beer. Wow. My cousins gave it to me and I think I think they thought it would um like deter me from drinking. Like it would oh, taste it's, it's so it's bad. Like, it was like a Yeah, a friend of mine's dad called him dip in Copenhagen and he took him outside and made him put the entire can in his mouth and of course he vomited because it was just so that was one of those, huh? Yeah, it was one of those, and then we were like water skiing on the Chesapeake or something, and like cousin's boat, and and they thought it would be funny if I had this beer, and it would like turn me away from it. And finally, one of the wiser cousins dumped it over the side and let, got me out of it, you know. But but it wasn't until I went back and spent time with my friends, and they they asked me about it, and they were like just mesmerized by the story. They're like, you had a beer? Oh, oh my cool. gosh. And and all of a sudden I was like, oh, these people are interested in me. Like these people, you know, like they're talking to me. I'm like, I feel lifted. You know, this is like what I've been looking for is like But to one feel, thing you weren't getting at home, yep. you got there. Uh, you yep. got a positive reinforcement on a very negative thing. And then I realized like, hey, I, there's a whole – liquor closet at my house like because the cabinet's too small so i can i can i bet i could pull a handle of vodka out of there and no one would ever notice you know and that was it you i did. was kind of i was kind of off and off and running so um you're telling me you were drinking at 12 13 14 being cool all that yeah yeah it was uh and, you know, it's it's not uncommon for folks who struggle with substance use to say, well, the first time they had that, they just felt at peace or at ease, you know? And, and for me, it was that combined with people wanting to be around me and, and, 
and sort of wanting to share time with me and, and I felt like it was caring about me and loving me, but it was really, they just wanted to party with me, but I was good with that, <laughs> you know? You know, it's funny. Um, that's not very dissimilar from the many people I've interviewed who got into gangs at 13 and 14. It yep. was the same. I thought people were loving me and everything else, but it, it's the same thing. Seeking, um, having holes in a part of your, your, your psyche and, and your soul that are filled they're positively reinforced by negative things. And it sounds like it's not much different. Alcohol was that for you. Gangs may be that for kids from the hood, whatever. All stemming, frankly, from childhood trauma, really. Yeah. 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 And if you, I mean, imagine that group of kids I was hanging out with, their stories were probably similar. And they, what brought them together around this thing with me was, was probably a similar desire for connection. And I think, you know, and, and you could, you could tell a story, you know, about somebody getting involved in gang life that could sound very much like somebody seeking safety. That's and then it, it tur turns into something that, that is much more destructive. And that's how my addiction was. So alcohol was a gateway to, I guess, was it weed first? I mean, the, yeah, it was pretty I don't, I don't want to generalize your story, but typically it's alcohol, weed, maybe elude or something and then ultimately cocaine or heroin i mean that is almost the story verbatim i've heard a hundred times yeah yeah and it was very similar you know i i could i could i knew where the booze was i could steal it i'd have the cool parties then i was you know as I, my adolescence progressed i was still struggling with the mental health stuff and depression and self-worth stuff and and through getting some mental health support I met somebody who sold weed and, and one day I was buying weed from her and I was like, what's that? And she's like, Hey, it's Coke. You know, I'm going to try a little bit. And I tried it. Same thing as the first beer. I told my buddies, they're like, no way you did that. You tried it. What was it like? And I was like, I bet I can get some, you know? And, and then, you know, I was, I was sort of, it, it turned into a whole, a whole sort of another level. I think like addiction has these like trap doors that, you feel like it's you're you're sort of on a more normal trajectory, and then you fall through one of those, and it's like a whole another layer that you've that you dropped into. When you were sober and straight, and you looked yourself in the mirror, what were you seeing then? Um, you know, like I was when I got into recovery, I found my way into a boxing gym, and and some guys in Boston. You know, a friend of mine was a Golden Gloves fighter. And she's like, oh, I'll coach you. I'll teach you about the sport. And I got into that boxing gym. This is like, you know, at 24 now. And and as I started to hit the bag and like learn about the sport and build some technique, I started to feel this self-confidence that I didn't have before. And uh, then somebody, you know, I had this opportunity to try climbing for the first time and and getting to the top of the climb, started to build that self-esteem. And there were some other sober guys in that boxing gym and I started to build a little fellowship and, and it started to just crack open enough light into this understanding that like how I viewed myself all these years was, was lies, right? Like it wasn't, I did have this innate strength and this innate value and, and I could achieve these things I put my mind towards and, and, um, and then I got hungry for that. 
I got hungry for that feeling and and wanted to keep chasing that instead instead of the drinking and the drugging. Do you feel like do you feel like you made a choice? Yeah, I I think I made a choice. Like I I think when you we talk about addiction, we often talk about like somebody's got to hit bottom before they change their their path. Yeah. I don't really see it that way. I think for a lot of us hitting bottom might just be the true bottom, right? The end of our life or it's over, you know, that kind of thing. I think that we have these little windows where we have a moment of perspective on our life. And That's what I'm talking about when you yeah. look yourself in the mirror. That's what I'm asking. Yep. And it was that. It was like you realize that like your dreams of who you thought you could be had been stripped away, sometimes in this very like insidious way that you didn't realize it was <laughs> happening. And I just found some things that started giving me some of those dreams back. And and I wanted to do that stuff more. And I wanted to do that more than what I used to do. And I realized the people around me actually cared about me in that in this new world. And that a lot of my buddies from the old one just wanted to go drink and get high. I um we jumped ahead a little. There's a there's a part of the story I think it's important for people to know before they understand so much about you that really makes what you do now incredible is somewhere along the line in there, before you started the ice climbing, your mom knew you were in trouble. And I don't really understand it. I'd like you to kind of tell me how it worked, but, and you ended up messing around on boats or something. I don't know. what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fill in the blanks for me on that. Yeah. 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 So, you know, when my mom was, I think, trying to get me out of the environment I was in, and I... She I, recognized it. She saw you were in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And and she was seeking any opportunity, you know. And I, I, I'm dyslexic. I'm horribly dyslexic. And in those days, prior to that, there really weren't a lot of resources for kids with learning disabilities. And there was a program for kids with dyslexia. And so we went and interviewed. It was a boarding school in Massachusetts. And I went up to interview and they mentioned this boat program that was like a semester at sea. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. You know, I was like, that sounds way better than what I'm doing in Pennsylvania, you know, and 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 uh, <laughs> and but somewhere in my heart, I think I knew I knew I had to change. I was afraid of the path I was on and. And my mom and I talked on the train on the way home and, and I decided to go on this program. And I think it's exactly what I needed. You know, there's something about nature has this like this very clear cause and effect. And and the, I would always sort of share that the captain would say, Hey, be careful going forward in the storm. And I'd be like, whatever, with my mohawk and my don't tread on me like leather jacket, you know. And <laughs> and uh, were you? And, is that really what your deal was? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You had mohawk. <laughs> yeah. Now it's now it's more like this way, mohawk. But yeah, uh, I get it. But still, um, yeah. but the it, it scenes from a Breakfast Club. <laughs> yeah, scene. totally. That, that, right. That was, yeah. That was it. Yeah. But. But then a wave would like crush you on the deck of the ship and you'd be like, hmm, maybe he's onto something, you know, maybe the captain <laughs> and uh, the old captain knows what he's talking about. Here. Yeah. And you started feeling this like sense of community with your crew. Like you had to, you had to work together. And when you, when you let somebody down there, it wasn't just you 
like with your self-fulfilling prophecy about your own sort of self-worth, it's all this internal sort of monologue, you, you were actually letting down a team that cared about you and needed you. And then so you find yourself showing up in a different way. And, and I didn't realize it at the time, but the foundation that I learned on the ship was really the elements and the principles of what would become uh, the nonprofit later. We'll be right back. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you... Here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you end up in Boulder? Yeah, 
Yeah. So in kind of a roundabout way, like, so when I got, got into recovery, got in the boxing gym, found this brochure about climbing and signed up for this climbing class and really changed my life, you know, by getting to the top of that climb and then jumped into that stuff with both feet and, and eventually was able to quit drinking and using. And I would just like wait outside the boxing gym with my gym bag with a couple other guys that were as dedicated and the door would open and we'd go in and stay there till they'd kick us out, you know? And that became my early recovery. And between that and going up climbing in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, you know, I was just all in on that stuff. And at this point was in recovery um, and fell in love. And, with, and this is almost a self-recovery, Scott. It doesn't sound like you're, you're just finding ways to change your own life at this point. Right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, am I, I'm asking, is that right? No, that is right. And you know, I didn't have the awareness at the time, but, but I was still chasing that self-worth. Like I had to, I started climbing, then I had to climb harder climbs. You know, I started doing triathlon, then I had to do Ironman, you know, like I had to, everything had to get always level up or else I didn't feel like I was proving to myself that I, that I had intrinsic strength. Uh, and I brother, didn't believe I, actually I believe you're overcoming voices that were still in your head from when you were eight years old. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You, you'd cross a finish line at an Ironman and say, man, I should have done better on the bike. I could have been faster in the swim. I was like, like you just never, I never stopped to celebrate anything I accomplished because I felt like I still messed it up, you know? And, and it was those, that, that in, internal monologue. Um, but, it, but those activities drew me out to Colorado and, and ultimately to Boulder where the Phoenix was born. So I read or heard or something, something I thought was pretty funny. You, uh, you decided this outdoors thing was kind of cool and you decided, Hey, I'm going to be an outdoorsy guy. And, um, you show up to like a, I don't know, a, some kind of outdoors place kind of place kind of place and 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 you say hey i've decided i'm going to be outdoorsy why don't you tell me what i need (laughs) yeah is that right (laughs) and were you on cocaine at the time (laughs) no i was actually sober that day but the the guy kind of looked at me and he was like uh I guess you need a Gore-Tex jacket, you know, and actually it was great advice. You know, that was like probably the best thing to start with. Um, And the guys that work at the outdoorsy place are kind of granola anyway. So I can kind of see him looking at you going, uh, uh, a coat. Yeah, coat. Yeah, exactly. Gloves. Yeah. Maybe to quit smoking is actually what you need. (laughs) You know, like, um, but, but, uh, Boda bag for your vodka? I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. know, right? <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, I was walking out with my new Gore-Tex jacket, and that's where I saw that. That it was actually ice climbing brochure. And really, you saw it there. I saw it there, and I thought this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And for some reason, I wanted to do it. And and that was, you know, then I stayed sober Friday night to do a climbing lesson on Saturday, and and that was, you know, I started like regulating my drinking so I could climb on the weekends. And that was the beginning of, of like weaning off of it. That's really kind of interesting. You really were, you know, you hear a lot of stories about people that quote, go to therapy 
you're in your own, you're figuring out your own personal therapy at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And the power of the outdoors. Like I think it was probably from those days on the boat. I knew that, you know, gone into nature and that that sense of awe that nature can kind of deliver is, is therapeutic, you know? And I, I just started going out there and, and that was filling me up in a different way and, and slowly started having less nights of the week where I was drinking. I can't let this escape me. It's just a thought. Yeah. Well, the irony that you just told me that uh, um, when you were with your dad, the way y'all escaped your dad's house was you went out and ran around in the trees and jumped creeks and played in the trees and grass and stuff. And the irony of that, I think, shouldn't be lost on any of this. Yeah. And I actually, sorry. Well, that's like a, that's pretty profound thing to kind of pick up on because, because you're right. You know, like when I think about back to my childhood, like the most joyous memories of my childhood are being out in the woods with my siblings, you know, like playing in the pond and, and it's like even the fond memories I do have with my dad were, you know, sitting at a tree line at sunset watching where the pheasants would go into roost, you know, because small game season was coming up and we were just listening to them, the sound of them, their wings coming over the top of the hill. And, you know, it was in those little moments where I actually got to bond with him. And, and I always feel like that was really who he was. The other stuff was just the, the noise getting in the way of his, from his own story. Yeah. Well, it all, ties together bud i mean it makes complete sense to me as i'm sitting here listening to you and um i think it's really sweet that you say that's who he really was i mean even though he had problems he chose to live on a farmhouse out in the middle of the woods so clearly he was drawn to the same things that his son was drawn to ultimately which is interesting i think yeah yeah it is it just shows that that history that lineage of pain isn't really there's no one um who's who's uh responsible for that it's at some point we need to forgive everybody in the chain and start new so brother scott's deciding i'm gonna climb some ice stuff in boulder with my new gore-tex jacket that the granola <laughs> guy gave me and i've got my ice climbing brochure in my hand yeah and now i'm in boulder take yep. us from there yeah. And I, I mean, I, uh, you know, just to be honest, right. I jumped right into that just with the same <laughs> vigor I was drinking and using with. And I was like, I was after it. I was training for Ironman. Then I race Ironman. Then I had to do a 24 hour mountain bike race. Then I had to do that race solo. Then I had to, you know, like I just started this, you know, I was, I did transfer the addiction, but the difference was inherent in all of those activities were things that sort of, um, at a foundational level helped me start to heal. And years later, I realized that the real magic of those activities wasn't the finish line. It was actually the people I was training with. It was those relationships that was really the bedrock of, of my sort of support network. 
Mm. Um, so those, you know, when you're on well, a bike, any of them recovering addicts as well, or well, funny you ask because um, one was my my best friend and climbing partner Ben Court. You know, we met at a climbing gym that he was a manager at. Started talking about climbing and realized we were both in recovery. Then we started spending our days in Rocky Mountain National Park climbing together. And then my other friend uh, who I climbed with was a clinical social worker. No so, kidding. So she like she just started to put the pieces together that, you know, as a social worker, what she realized the magic was was not necessarily getting that kid that she was supporting to the appointment he had to go to. It was the drive there and the time that they got to talk while they were doing that sort of like parallel activity of just sitting in the car, listening to music, talking about life. That was the most therapeutic part of that experience. And it's the same thing that, that Ben and I were having in the, in the mountains. We were tied into a climbing rope. We were climbing. We weren't really talking about our addiction story, but we were building new identity and new memories together that started to eventually push out those old negative feelings. What you just said is amazing. Do you know Bob Zacchio? I don't, no. In Bob Zacchio, the uh, therapy under a hood? All right, when you get an extra 45 minutes, go back to an Army and Normal Folks library. We've only been out a year, but early was an interview I did with a guy named Bob Zacchio, who is a social worker therapist and was working specifically with kids from the same background we're talking about in your life right now. Yeah. Oftentimes doing court-ordered therapy, which he found completely useless. Yep. And <laughs> so very frustrated and wanting to make a difference. One day he just, one of his kids showed up that he's supposed to work with that's dealing with addiction and drugs and alcohol and all kinds of stuff. And he says, come on. And he took him out in the parking lot and he taught him how to cast a reel. Oh, while I was just wow. talking while I was just talking to him. And he found out these kids that don't want to talk to me, if I take them out of the office and just interact with them, they open up. Anyway, seven years later, he now has therapy at auto mechanic shops. He has mm. therapy at screen shops. He has therapy fishing. He has therapy and all of these things. And he he does the therapeutic work that needs to be done with kids. But he doesn't do it in the office. He does it while they're engaged in something that's interesting. And the rate of his success of getting kids on the right track is like 12 times that yeah. of other social workers. And anyway, it's a great story. But he said exactly what you just said, that it wasn't the therapy that mattered. It was the time to and from therapy and the actual real live organic interaction that made the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And that sound, that's very similar to what, what the Phoenix became is, is that we just, we realize that by sharing this, I think of it this way, it's like we would kind of go out climbing and face this greater adversity together and get back from that safely because we relied on each other and, and our own gifts, you know, in, in that setting. And then Ben and I would be closer and supporting each other because we went through that together. So when I had a tough day in life, I could turn to him because that vulnerability had already been created. And I think that, that the Phoenix was just an idea about how we could do that at scale. 
And that concludes part one of my conversation with Scott Strode. And you don't want to miss part two that's now available. As we dive into how Scott turned the idea of recovery program and community into the movement that it is today. Guys, together we can change this country, but it starts with you. I'll see you in part two. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.